Washington, it's Documental, Mapping the American States of Mind, with me, Whitney Fishburne. This is a delight. I'm so pleased to be able to welcome Alice Sparkly-Cat to Documental. Alice also goes by Ace. Ace is the author of Postcolonial Astrology, Reading the Planets Through Capital, Power, and Labor. And many of you, probably most of you in my audience are not astrologers or interested in astrology, but this is a great topic and a wonderful book for you to know about regardless. I hope you'll stay tuned. Um, but for those of you who are interested in astrology, uh, it's kind of really, I think it'll just really, you'll have to step back for a minute and go, wait a minute, <laughs> how do I, how do I integrate this? That's what's happened to me. Um, I, I have found this book just it's, it's so great to have your paradigms shaken up. And I've been doing that for the last three years with Documental, but this book really, really brought it all together. And I'm just so pleased to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much, Ace. So excited to be here. Thanks for talking with me. So can we talk about why you've changed your name to Alice Sparkly Cat from, what was your original um, birth name, Alice? Yan was it or Juan? I wasn't sure. I'm not sure. I don't know. My birth name? My birth name is Chinese. And so I like I never tell people my birth name actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um my birth name is Yanlan. And then um so yeah, I mean I was named Alice when I moved to the United States. Like we just pulled open dictionaries, the first name that was available on the first page. And then I, yeah, I started using Alice Sparkly Cat as a teenager. And then, I mean, I was using it on Facebook because at the time, like, you know, no one used their real names online. So then I just started, I, I just kept using it because uh, I don't know, like in the early 2000s, everyone knew you by your Facebook name for some reason. But it's a great illustration of how when you choose your own name, you are the one in control of your identity. And that's such a powerful message that I take out of your book, which is basically, you know, it's a, a sort of primer on how we tell a new story in a world where people really are starting to look at capitalism as um, maybe not, I, I'm starting to see that it's basically a lie but that doesn't make us all liars. It's a weird kind of paradox. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, because we're caught in it. And it's like fish in water, what's water? If you're in it, you don't mm. know it. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very, um, maybe it's a courageous act to see mm. it the way that you're seeing it, that maybe people, if I could be so bold as to say, as I'm starting to see it, but it's it's not an easy task, no matter what you know, to start to see that the whole world that you have been held in place by is constructed on things that you've never actually been allowed to see and question. And if my audience is going, what the heck are you talking about? I think if you've been following Documental, you realize that we're, we're unpeeling all of the status quo stories that we tell. And, and my own particular interest is in how those end up as policies that really hold us in place because policy is law, policy is procedure, and we all have to make some kind of sense out of chaos. But these past four years, five years now, really we've come to understand that the chaos is coming for us anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the chaos is there, and we have these two kind of factions forming. There's the, the post-truth, um, post-truth but wants to go back to the lie, which is, that there is hierarchy and it is real and it is inevitable and it is also 
sustainable, none of these things are true. Because if they were, we wouldn't have a climate crisis and we wouldn't have so much pain and anger. And then there's the other side of, you know, it's much more of a spectrum, I think, where people are saying, I know that's not true. And capitalism can only eat itself eventually. It's a cannibalistic way of being. But what do we do about it? And how do we make sense of the chaos so that we're not, as Rilke, you know, the Rilke poem, standing on fishes? We do need some place that's solid. And I, I think your book does a great job of gently, but also fiercely saying, hey, these are the lies and we've suffered from them. You're a person of color, you identify as queer. These are not the people that get to be um, seen as the truth tellers, but they've been the truth tellers because they've been the ones who were the most harmed by the imposition of a truth that only served a few people. So it's a very long introduction, but um, I think we need to set that context that we're, we're all involved in this. And that's why this is not just a book for people who are interested in astrology or people who are you know, on the fringes, because really, all of us is on the fringe. All of us has been made on the fringe because our system is consumptive and eventually it has to eat us all. I, I you know, I don't want to start sounding like a preacher, but um, wow, I read this Thanks book. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I wrote the book for people who practice astrology, but like, I, I mean, I wanted to keep it really open. So there's no technical information in it no. or anything like that. Like, it's really, um, like it's for anyone who likes to think about archetypes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get into it then. So um, you say that um, you don't make it a technical book and it, and it isn't, but it is about archetypes and really what it's about. Here's how I took it is it's about myth making and um, whoever controls the language controls the way that we use the language. They use the archetypes, use, use the parameters that our archetypes are there for us to create from. We do live in a post-truth world. I don't think that that's a controversial statement, but then what is truth, right? So, <laughs> so we really are starting to become aware that we're just making it all up. And that is a very revolutionary thing to say for so many people. This is the month where the Department of Defense is going to release some report. I'm sure they're not gonna release everything they know, admitting that we have been tracking unidentified aerial phenomena for years, what? for decades. Yeah. So what is that going to do? Well, I think that's going to really undermine this idea that there is a hierarchy because let's just say there is a hierarchy. We're clearly not sure if we're really on the top of it because we don't know what's coming into our airspace. We have no idea. Right, right, right. Yeah. When no you mentioned idea. hierarchy, like I, I, like um, I'm like reminded of this like Kafka like mi microfiction, uh, and in it he's talking about like. There's a society, it's like very hierarchical. And then um, like you go in and you ask everyone like who has the power? And then you go all the way to the person who's at the very top. And he's like, you know, no, no one is God. Like, you know, is this like empty kind of like power holder too. Which brings us kind of back to the existentialism of, you know, the right after uh, Nazis. Well, or at least the, the Nazis never went away, but right after World War II, where there was this kind of like, what is it all about and who's really running the puppet show? So that's kind of the moment where I think we are again. And that's why I think that this book is really um, useful because it, it gives us some things to actually ask questions about. 
So to bring it down into a more practical sense, if we're living in a post-truth world and what is truth, okay, well, what do we do about what we know? And we, we question the language and we question how it's used. And one of the things that um, you put forth is, is that language and race are both magical thinking. And we're gonna come back to that, but um, could you explain for the audience more about what you mean when you say that race is magical thinking? Well, I mean, yeah, race is not real. Like, it's not a biological reality. So it's a social construct. Like, we behave like it's real, so then it becomes real. Race originated, like, as a religious thing. Like, at first it was like, oh, like, you know, white people are, like, predetermined to go to heaven. And so, like, I mean, at its core, like, you know, we're in, in like, the earliest, uh, like, variation of race was religious. Um, and then it became something that was secularized. And by being secularized, like it was made to be like, you know, it was like, it, it looked scientific. Um, and then, so that's like how kind of race like changed aesthetically throughout time. But I don't know where it originated. Like, I can't say I know that. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I ask that question of my most recent guest, one of my most recent guests, Brian Murrescu, who's written a book that basically challenges the sanctity of the Catholic and all Christian faiths because it says, hey, you know what, the Eucharist, which is the key to uh, the, the Catholic faith anyway, transubstantiate, I can never say the word, but the Eucharist being the blood and the body of Christ. And he's saying, actually, it's probably a psychedelic ceremony and it was meant to show you how the power is within you. <laughs> but, but that keeps my question generating more questions for me, which is where in the world then did hierarchy come from? What put in the consciousness of a few men, you know, Romans, I don't know, did we have hierarchy before the, the Romans came and took over I guess, you know, the classical world, there was slavery in, in the Hellenic um, era, but then the Romans came in and really made it a religion itself and they co-opted Christianity. And that is an ongoing question for me is why did we decide we needed hierarchy and why do we suffer from it? Yeah, I have no idea, but I think it's not really like a continuous history. Like, you know, it's not this thing that like develops over time. That's the same thing. I think it's just something that shows up in various forms like a lot of ancient empires they were uh like they were slave societies because they needed to mine for precious metals like and they always needed more and more precious metals that's what their economy kind of depended on and it's true there there have been it's not just a white thing hierarchy has existed in many different races well you know let's not say races in many different cultures um, you know, there has been subjugation. Subjugation does seem to be a human event or a human um, attempt at, at, I don't know what it is though. Why is power so um, essential to feeling like we are um, safe? I, I, don't, I don't know how we've ended up doing that, but let's look at how, um, Let's get to talking about the sun, okay? Because I don't like like you. I don't want to make this too technical, but the sun in astrology is um, indicative of, or at least as it is practiced now, using the times, using the symbology that was originated during the Hellenic times, so like 350 BC on through Roman times. So you know, first couple hundred years after. Um, Jesus, you position it as less about power and ego which is how it's often um, described, but more about 
surveillance and um, stripping away any privacy or any identity that is unique to the individual. So could you get a little bit more into that, um, explaining how you know, the sun is maybe less less of a source of power than uh, than it is a source of power over. Yeah, yeah. Well, so like, yeah, researching each planet symbol, like a lot of what makes something meaningful within astrology is created associatively. So then I'm trying to like look at, hey, like what were medieval astrologers saying? Like what were Roman astrologers saying about like, you know, just associations of the sun. Um, and then something that I found was, well, I mean, first of all, the sun, like, you know, it's the sun in the sky. It's the literal form of the sun too. And then, so there's a lot of associates, um, associations with that. Um, a lot of like how we thought about sight was that sight was like these beams of sight coming out of the eye. So a lot of times the sun was compared with an eye. Uh, there's another component of the sun, which is that it's something that moves around the sky in a circle. So then it has a particular way of imagining time too. And like with that, like, so the sun, it, um, it tends to stand for like this idea of a future utopia, at least in a lot of the, um, a lot of the Roman poems um, they're saying, hey, like, you know, Saturn's this last golden age. But when they compare, um, like, when they talk about, um, like, a future golden age, like, they're, you know, usually saying, well, there's going to be, like, a sun god or, like, a child of Apollo or something like that. And then, so, it, listen, it's about futures. Uh, it's about, uh, yeah, surveillance because of that eye um, of, like, you know, kind of looking outward, and so we're just kind of connecting dots. It's about gold. Um, gold is likened to the sun a lot of times, uh, silver to the moon. Yeah, yeah that, um, the way that you um, posit the sun as being surveillance, and, and when you talk about the eye, I'm, I'm reminded of um, Fitzgerald's eye in The Great Gatsby. That eye, that's oh, yeah. the seeing eye on the billboard. and. Right. There's waste all around, but that eye sees everything, and it, it haunts um, Gatsby. And um, actually, I think that the uh, the movie version with DiCaprio and um, and uh, let's see who it was her name Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the sun. Yeah, oh such a sun movie, huh? Yeah. Wow. Good, ca good catch. <laughs> but that it, it's a great depiction of that sense, of, and it's very rife with gold. The whole movie shimmers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's this idea of it being, um, um, it's stripping away and stripping away, but making them crazy. Really, it makes him crazy by by him fixating on it. But this idea that um, going back to slavery and going back to the idea that um, gold it has to be mined. And then the moon being silver, um, as an as someone who is an astrologer and who actually is interested in 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 astrology, I I was really taken aback to think, oh wait, you know, the sun and the moon were not always masculine and feminine. They were not always about gold and silver. They've they have had other meanings, and I'm wondering if you could um, talk about that interplay around the time that that hierarchy and this idea of owning people became the West with, with well, and we'll talk about the fact that the West is an invention, but this idea that, um, that only a few were supposed to have access to the gold and to the sun 
And that made the moon a mistress in a way, made the moon a, a slave to reproduction. Um, can you talk about how that came about and how they were something else prior to them being co-opted by, by a few for the sake of hierarchical power? Well, I guess like um, there's not really like a before and after kind of scenario with like, you know, Western astrology and non-Western astrologies, like non-Western astrologies like still exist. And a lot of times the dividing line between them, it's not so abrupt. Uh, so like there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of different influences all the time. It's not like there's like, oh, Western astrology that's like kind of like, like you're creating something from different traditions and then you know, that's the newer kind or anything like that. It's like, yeah, the, the line between Western and non-Western astrology is like, it's still pretty fluid. And then um, what the book is trying to figure out is like, why do we remember Western astrology as Western? And then, so it's looking at how we remember Rome. It's not like a historical overview of like, you know, the various cults of Rome or anything like that. It's about how, like, yeah, how is this astrology remembered to be differently than how it was practiced? And so like, because it's about that, then it's looking at these planet archetypes and then it's kind of like sifting through and pulling out, um, pulling up the narratives that, are really about the invention of the West. Um, like just to give an example, like, you know, with the moon, like there's a lot having to do with like lunar mansions and myths about the moon in South Asia and East Asia. And then like that all came through and influenced Western astrology as well. But like, um, I'm only looking at the significance of the moon as something that is impactful in like yeah how we imagine the west today um because i'm trying to figure out like you know yeah why do we call this astrology this type of astrology western too yeah i guess that goes that goes back to this original um question that that we started with which is um what is truth you know if it's a post-truth world what was the truth that we are um that we're reflecting backwards on and so it's a good place to ask what is the west because the west is really where capitalism originated and so you know i remember hearing you in, in a different podcast discussing how at the time rome was really gathering its strength and and co-opting the church and and starting to conquer and and hierarchies were starting to really be um, um institutionalized and globalized that the a person living in that time and in that region wouldn't have thought of themselves as a westerner so for sure yeah because that's a really new invention new being what post world war ii or uh, i know that nationality was invented kind of around uh world war ii I don't know, like, yeah, I don't know when the word the West would have been first used. That's a really good question. Yeah, actually, I don't know the answer. But definitely, yeah, definitely not in 300 BC. Yeah. So, so this idea then that um, your, your goal is to look at things we take for granted, such as race, and see how they are actually a, a tool to empower a few and 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 serve the west and then this idea that well we're all within the west and then some of the arguments you might hear against your pos your position would be well we all benefit 
we all benefit. But that's why I said, you know, we're, we're all living a lie, but not necessarily liars, because maybe we're not given choices otherwise. And so this is why I think this is such a delicate time in human history, because people are starting to say, hey, you know, surveillance capitalism, the all-knowing son, knowing everything about my life, being able to take my data and essentially sell me. And so therefore, without my permission, I am enslaved. This negates the Constitution. If you can take my data as a digital company and sell, my, sell me without my knowledge and then package my attention, I'm not really free. And then now that I'm starting to understand that that's been happening, what do I do about it? It's a really crazy making time. We could all go crazy because we could start to think, well, the sun knows everything. So, you know, what what do we do about these kinds of questions? What do we start with as what what we want to dismantle and then put back together? And I, I think that's why it's so fascinating that you're using the archetypes and you're saying like the archetypes don't have an opinion about what they're supposed to look like in shape and in, in practical use. So how do we take those archetypes, take these questions and turn it around and actually live in a different world? I think these are such heady questions, but that's what we're doing. Um, I wouldn't like, I wouldn't say that everyone benefits from white supremacy. Um, no, of course yeah. not. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's mm -hmm. the, that is the, that's the, that's the story. Mm -hmm. That's the story we get told, you right, know, right. Like, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, like, that's the all, story. And yeah, we're told, yeah. oh, see, for example, affirmative action. That just makes everybody that's right, just right, right. finding a way so that everybody fits into the story. Well, I yeah, see. Maybe the story itself isn't. Yeah, the right yeah, story. yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I think it. I mean, I think that in order to take a language apart, like you just have to practice it differently. So I think that's what's really exciting about astrology right now, actually, is that a lot of people are deconstructing it as we practice it, like through playing with it, through using it to build relationships, to like, yeah, to kind of like strengthen each other. And so I think that there's something really incredible happening with astrology communities right now because of that. Um, and I think it happens to other languages too. I think it happens to, um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, art, like anyone who's practicing art, it's like, okay, well, we're deconstructing the idea of what like, art is um, by kind of entering all the time. Yeah, you know, a lot of different languages, English, and yeah, it's, yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah, it's happening. I think it is exciting. And, and I like the idea of it being post-colonial, post-modern in this way, because it is reinventing what we have. And, you know, you come out of fan fiction, you talk about how you, you, um, you got these ideas in part from fan fiction. And that's for my audience who doesn't know what that is. I do have a lot of people who are um, older and, and they, they mm -hmm. missed how technology has made this kind of participation in myth making possible, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, fan fiction is basically you'll, uh, here's an example I know. So people who were unhappy with the way Game of Thrones turned out in the final episode. So they just rewrote their own episodes and they were like, all right, this is really what happened. <laughs> and then whole communities spring up around, well, this is, this is our world. And, and mm -hmm. why not? Why not? I mean, we're just making it all up. And that is, I think, what's so hard for people to understand. But, um, but that is the exciting part, really, is, is that you're you're kind of at the leading edge of this idea that and I wrote in my notes, um, telling a new story in a post-truth world. It's really just learning how to agree on a myth 
and a new myth. And then everybody gets new roles that they help choose for themselves in the myth. And the myth is actually meaningful. And you're, and you're infusing these symbols with new meaning. And so therefore life can have a new point to it. And I think that's ultimately what I hope to see is where people can participate consciously in understanding the point of it all, because then you can create better policies. Because right now our policies are, are based on things that aren't true and demonstrably aren't true anymore. And um, they, they will ultimately return us back to this, this sense of being enslaved. And, and I think what's important, what I keep getting out of, of work such as yours is, this is not a person of color thing. This is a people thing. Whenever there is this hierarchical construct, it must always eat what is below it. And so ultimately everything is consumed and that is not sustainable. And I don't know why that's so hard for people to understand, but it seems to be. Um, in a way you kind of describe race as a fairy tale and, and um, I mean, that's my word for it, but it's used, it's put forth, for example, as it was in Nazi Germany. And again, we're seeing it again as this idea that there are some people who really don't deserve the benefits of the sun and the moon, for example. Um, and so they need to be cl cleansed. They need to be exterminated, gotten rid of so that we can have a clean, a clean world. And, and I'm wondering, is that really just race or is that hierarchy? And are you addressing more than just race? Are you addressing the whole um, paradigm of there being a, a top and a bottom? And in such, maybe making it possible for us to start seeing things as more circle, circular or, you know, integrated. So I feel like this is a very old debate about like what was, what came before. And so kind of like, which is almost like the original sin, um, capitalism or race. Um, and a lot of different leftist thinkers will have different opinions. Sylvia Winter writes that race preceded capitalism and then there's a lot of well there's a lot of white leftist thinkers who will say that capitalism preceded race actually so then you know one form the other um, but i think that's why it's actually so important to have words such as racial capitalism because it's like hey like no th these things they work together um they yeah they're enforced together they work together um a lot of how we think about labor um about exploitation like it's yeah it's about like these two things working together so they're not so like uh divided you've had a lot of um more mainstream interest in this such as the show but um also like there was an inter interview with you in the nation and um i'm wondering do you think people understand what you're talking about regardless of whether or not they're into astrology or, or is this ahead of its time or do people get what you're saying no, I'm really glad that I was able to release this at this moment. I think people are practicing astrology in a different way. But like, again, that's not just limited to astrology. Uh, like, I hope that this book is useful for like all kind of like language practitioners, for people who want to like kind of use a language as it is eroding and give it new life kind of thing. Because um, I mean, you know, it's it's definitely it's made for astrologers. So like, uh, yeah, you know, it's like kind of like geared for folks who practice astrology specifically, but I hope it's, it's useful for people who practice, you know, tarot, um, yeah, image making, music making, just all forms of like language creation. 
One of the things that um, you quote, and, and one of my other guests have quoted that as well, Grace Blakely in her book, Stolen, um, How to Save the World from Financialization. She refers to the work of the late Mark Fisher and you as well. And you both quote, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is the, than it is the end of capitalism. And I remember when I read that in, I guess it was 2018, that was when I started to feel like that fish who realized it was in water and maybe that water wasn't the only element. <laughs> but that really, it, it was it was a visceral reaction when I read that. And so I had already it's read it when book. I, yeah, and I bought the book and I read the book and I, and you know, it just, in so many ways, it, it, it shocked me into asking different questions. And I think, as a person who more than others has benefited from this construct we've all been living, but who also has felt the pain of it and asked questions that no one could come up with answers for, having my questions and my own misgivings framed that way, it was almost like a massive duh moment. We're like, like why would no one ever question this? But people were questioning it and they weren't being heard even though the evidence was all around us, that capitalism had to be a lie if we were, unless we were just meant to, you know, be really, truly ineffable and just, you know, gobble ourselves up and die. <laughs> but, but maybe that's not, and that's why I bring it back to the UFOs, because now we have this other input from someplace we don't even know, and we don't have any idea what the context for it is. And so maybe, maybe that alone will undermine this lie of that hierarchy is is the final answer. I don't know, but um, but this idea that there could be another world and it doesn't have to end if we look at things beyond capitalism. I keep coming back to that because this shared myth making, I think, can be really frightening to people because one of the reasons why. I mean, when they realize that's what it is, because, you know, this whole phenomenon right now of the make America great again, for me, I look at it and I go, well, that's shared myth making. It's shared return to an old myth making and, and not being aware that that true believer status is actually because you're so scared that you're going to lose something, well, obviously power. But if you if we were in a different construct where life did not um, only involve taking power from someone else if you could just stop and step back and think of a world that's post-capitalism what might it look like then maybe the fear of well gosh i'm making it all up becomes less frightening and that gets into this question that you know as two astrologers talking i do have but two people who are interested in um in the idea that life does have meaning it does have meaning i get the sense that Bless you. Oh, I get, I get the sense that you um, practice, and it is not a spirit. I don't know. Is it a spiritual event for you to use astrology? Is that the point of myth? Yeah, I'm not that spiritual of a person. I don't know why, but I feel like anything that I'm doing that's like belief oriented, like it has to be rooted in practice. 
so it's like more of a daily practice kind of thing for me, honestly. Uh, I mean, that's just speaking uh, personally. I think a lot of people have really spiritual relationships to astrology, aesthetic relationships to astrology. That's really cool. Yeah, I don't have that personally. Like for me, it's like, it's very like just about kind of like daily practice. So I guess the thing that makes it fascinating for me then as somebody who who came to astrology actually because I was looking for a more um, flexible language around spirituality. I didn't want to have received spirituality, which is what, right. religion, you know, religion tells you this is what you believe, this is how mm -hmm. you're supposed to believe it. Yeah. But I don't know that I also feel like I'm the ultimate authority and what and what I want to contain my spirituality in. So that's kind of why astrology is useful because there is tradition, but then there's also creativity. And um, it's it's a little um, unnerving sometimes because you just think, well, is am I right? Am I wrong? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's where I guess the reality of the golden rule, and it's funny that it's called golden, but it comes back to doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. That is really what I keep coming back to is true no matter what. And, and, if, you, and if you do apply that golden rule, hierarchy crumbles. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then never seeing it really being played out. Yeah. So, so my, my for my audience who doesn't understand, astrology has a lot of sub genres, sub um, like subcultures. So, um, but Hellenistic classical astrology, whole sign astrology, the Chani Nichols um, school of thinking, it's it's um, it's Hellenistic generally. It's classical. So, what has been the reaction of astrologers to your work? I mean, like, I think people are reading it, maybe still reading it. Yeah, I haven't seen that many reviews for it. So I don't know yet. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if this is um, disruptive in a way that um, astrologers today are not used to being disrupted. <laughs> you know? Oh, I hope it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one thing that Sam Reynolds said was like, hey, like, you know, this isn't about like kind of putting Jung on a pedestal. This is about deconstructing some of the archetypes. Um, so that's why I hope kind of pe people walk away with it, um, you know, like having. Um, and then I also hope that people are like, oh, hey, like, you know, these archetypes are being deconstructed. So how do I play with them in my own practice? Well, that was really useful for me to actually and and just and upsetting in a way because now I'm kind of like, well, now what, what do I do? Where, you know, you caused me to question the um, supremacy of Jungian thought with archetypes. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, let's talk about that because Jung arose around, Jung's own thinking was put forth around the same time that the Nazis were um, in ascendance and, mm -hmm. and Hitler. And so here's Jung talking about the archetypes and then there's also Hitler Germany in that moment, um, or Nazi Germany, and they are using astrology. So let's talk about that kind of neoliberal um, fascist appropriation of astrology. And then maybe what Jung was doing was um, just a, the same side of the different, I mean, the different side of the same coin. Is that possible to see it that way? Because they were of the same era. They were of the same era. Um, yeah, I haven't really like compared Yun to to na Nazism, and I haven't really like seen anyone do that. But yeah, Yun was very racist. 
Yeah, and he was very, yeah, I mean, he was very sexist too. Yeah, I mean, and that, that is something that is hard, I think, for people who are used to looking at the Venus as feminine and Mars as, as masculine. This is what you're saying is, you know, they weren't always seen that way and, and gender really is fluid. And so their energies are fluid and, and um, that, that's disruptive. So then that can be just, dis- that I think can upset astrologers who are used to like, no, Venus has to be feminine. That's what Jung taught. And, you know, that's how Jung used it. So I, yeah, I hope it disrupts that because there's a lot of male gods that represent Venus too, like Lucifer. Lucifer is Venus. So how would you, how do you do that then? Like if you were going to give um, a consultation to someone and they're accustomed to, let, I don't know, let's just say Venus and Scorpio. Mm-hmm. So Venus and Scorpio, um, how would you interpret that? If Venus traditionally has been seen as the feminine energy of beauty and values and cleanliness and harmony, and then Scorpio, it's not comfortable there because it's um, it's resentful and possessive. Okay, so there's like the way you maybe get that from from if you're reading a, one of these online astrology sites, you would very easily see something like that. But how would you take those energies and those archetypes and and see them through um, this deconstructive way? Well, Venus, it's in detriment in Scorpio. So it's trying to work against the environment a little bit. That's kind of the first thing. And then, um, I, w- I mean, if a person's kind of into astrology, I would ask them, like, how do you see your Venus and Scorpio show up? And then start a conversation about that. And then uh, if anything's changing with Venus, like if it's going through a transit or something, I'm like, hey, like, here's the dates for the transit. Did you see anything change in terms of relationship expectations? or like how you might be expected to play social roles during this time. So we're really like kind of trying to look at how a person tells their own story. Um, like, I'm, yeah, like I, I tried to not delineate during a client consultation because like delineations, they're really fun, they're really creative. I think that's my voice. And then that doesn't have a place in the client consultation. So the client consultation is where we're both learning. Like we're both trying to generate new knowledge. So I'm like, hey, like, you know, yeah. How do you see your Venus and Scorpio talk about that? How do you see that show up in your life? We're looking at different patterns. We're putting things together. So then like we're getting a little bit deeper. You know, I guess what I'm hearing, and I want to get back to talking about how impactful what you're doing is to the actual structures that we have in place around hierarchy. But what I'm hearing you say really is that this is, even at the micro level, one person to one person, there is a a, a therapeutic energy occurring when the two of you are examining a story that is about a person's life. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And done in a respectful, safe way. Yeah. Does this it, it causes me to think differently about psychology then, especially if, if we're looking at how Jung is, is kind of the god of psychology, he's certainly been discarded by psychiatry for the most part. Um, but it does then call into question whether our policies around mental health are based on, on racist per- precepts. I think sometimes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think sometimes, I mean, I don't know anything about psychology is the thing. Um, I know Yoon as an astrologer, he's like the most famous astrologer, um, but like, I don't know anything about psychology, uh, but like, I think that in my experience of things, um, 
I think sometimes like a lot of how mental illness is described, it's described for one type of experience. It's described sometimes for really very like white, um, like usually cis male, not all the time, but like white middle-class experience. Um, so that does, it excludes a lot of people, excludes a lot of experiences. Um, a lot of times I think that just because a lot of therapy is like institutionalized, sometimes people of color encounter it like through coercion too. Um, but that's not like, yeah, I mean, I think that's like, you know, with the institutions, not like, you know, on the care worker themselves or anything. Um, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, you know, like we live in a racist society. So it's not like psychology can be not racist on its own. Yeah. And I think that you're, you're getting back to this idea that, you know, we're all living a lie, but that doesn't make us liars. And and that's really hard to unravel, you know, if, because I've spent most of my adult life and most of my career around people who are interested in helping others. And they are some, they, they practice some sort of therapy, you know, whether it's psychological therapy, or it's a psychiatric mm -hmm. therapy, you know, whatever the modality is. Yeah. The idea is I want to help people be out of pain. And I began Documental having trademark this idea um you know that we could create herd immunity to anxiety and depression but first i wanted to know what well, really what are anxiety and depression right what is it yeah and you know what this is what led me to to this conversation is it's like well it's whatever the people in power want to tell us it is but in fact you know just looking at it scientifically i started noticing that mm -hmm. whether or not it was causative there was correlative data that showed the the more pervasive surveillance capitalism became the higher our rates of anxiety and depression oh, and suicide. that makes sense yeah because and this goes back to your book well you know the sun is associated with being able to see everything and and the power over and who's controlling that well it goes back to the kings and louis the sun king and you know only the royalty could have the power to actually harness light and and that's really what we are experiencing in this much more modified, but still essentially the same way where we don't actually get to have the power over what is seen. We're being seen, we're being monitored, and this is making us crazy, but we're told it's just anxiety. And, and these are the things you should do about your anxiety, which then puts the onus back on us to figure out what's wrong with us when maybe there's really nothing wrong with us. And it yeah. gets, it gets tricky because you know then there are actual brain events you know there are brain problems that we have to address that are biological schizophrenia has a biological component and you know like where's that line where's or where's the continuum but i think it's one of the things that you talk about two two things i, I just really honestly ace it just shook me up to think wow that makes so much sense i'm so glad somebody's put this out there one that darwin was serving what you know this idea that that Darwinism is actually true. And we base our science on this. And, but Darwin was serving a paradigm consciously at the time, which was, you know, power, they were looking for reasons to be able to justify being in power. I mean, can you talk a little bit about your understanding of Darwinism? God, it was Abigail Thorne who put out a video about this. And then uh, she was talking about how like, well, Darwin, like he was an aristocrat, like he was part of the certain class that had its own interests. And I don't remember if it was Darwin himself or his brother that was like, hey, like, you know, let's describe these findings that Darwin's doing, like in this way that was, um, like it was creating social Darwinism. Um, yeah, but 
like a lot of how we think about evolution it's based on competition like kind of survival of the fittest this kind of thing uh and then there's this scientist a feminist scientist called banu sabranium and she really looks at interspecies relationships and she's like whoa like you know the only um studies that really get funded is about competition but there's not enough studies funding like mutualism like interspecies like kind of altruism like these other types of relationships too so she's like well, a lot of the narratives we have around nature like it is because of how like social darwin darwinism is still being enforced in how we think about relationships yeah yeah, and, and so that's how we frame our questions. And so, you know, I have a, another friend who says science is for rich people. And, and I think that makes sense now in a way that it didn't make sense to me before. And, you know, so therefore public policy is going to be based on questions rich people ask. Mm -hmm, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Um, but what I think is starting to happen is we're starting to understand that there are, are different ways of knowing there, there are different ways of knowing and, yeah. and the way that we think we have to know is driven by this industrial complex of everything. Um, you make a lot of really excellent points about how hierarchy and, and astrological symbols reinforce this idea of having to make us strangers from one another and from ourselves. You're also the first person I can ever remember who was critical of Virgil. <laughs> seeing, <laughs> seeing Virgil um, as just basically laying the field for why we can have hierarchy. You know, this is why things are going to oh. be about. Oh, no, no. I Yeah, I think Virgil, like, yeah, he was, like, working from the ages of the meadows. Yeah, I hope I wasn't critical. I was just like, oh, hey, like, here's two different people who are looking at the ages of meadows in, like, very different ways, like, yeah, here's their political motivations, things like that. Yeah, I, I saw it as when, okay, you wrote, when Virgil writes that the child shall rule the world to which his father's prowess brought peace, and that this glorious age will begin under polio's consulship, he keeps the identity of the child vague, but uses the reference to polio to produce the poem's political and secular dimensions. In this yeah, way, this- Yeah, like he was talking about a literal child. Um, like, yeah, he was trying to support like an heir or something like that. Yeah, this was the beginning of the Roman Empire through a grandiose vision of imperialism. And I went, oh, yeah, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> I see. And, and it had never been spelled out that way to me before. So, oh, this cool. I, yeah, and you do that over and over in the book. And this idea, what I'm trying to get you to do is to just show how astrological symbolism mm -hmm. has reinforced this idea that we are separate from ourselves. And, and some of the ways you talk about the moon infuriated me on the behalf of those of us who have felt this, which is everybody. This idea that um, the moon is, wasn't always feminine. The moon actually um, is just about commerce, about exchange. It's about changing. It, it um, was associated with the tides because that is where the merchants came in on the tide. And, at the river banks, which is interesting that they're called the banks. Um, oh, true. And but then it became associated with, in a sense, um, the crone, the maiden, and the um, the virgin, and 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 the handmaiden to the sun. 
And I thought, wow, you know, because of course in the moon in astrology, we're always thinking about it. it's the feminine, it's our mother, it's our emotions. And interestingly, we're about to colonize it. Really, I mean, Amazon, Jeff Bezos is putting, he plans on using the moon as a staging area to Wait, go to really? Mars. Yes. Wow. That is what Amazon is doing. That is what Jeff Bezos left Amazon to do is to go, I forgot, blue, blue something. Jeff Bezos is planning to use the moon as a staging area to go to Mars. That's so scary. But I mean, it's essentially what we're talking about, colonizing. But now beyond just symbolizing, the, colonizing the symbols themselves, colonizing the actual bodies. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that was happening. You know, in, a, lot, a lot of times in science fiction, um, like the moon, it's like, like imagined as a colony. And then um, Mars is imagined as like invasive. Like there's all these Martians coming to get us. Uh, and that's from the symbolism too, where like the moon, it's like another home almost. And then Mars is almost like this, um, like, you know, like invasive thing. Um, but then the moon is a resource. One of the things you talk about is um, real estate. So it's, it's reality that emerges from capital. And this is what I really want to get at is where do we get these symbols of capitalism and, um, and this reorientation to power, which this idea that when we look at the land as only being um, in service to the royal, which is where the word real, real estate comes from, real, the kings in Spanish, you know, it's his, and only certain ones were allowed to own it. You know, I started my career really as a, um, as a local, at a local newspaper, as a land use reporter in New Jersey. And mm -hmm. So land is scarce, but people are plentiful in New Jersey. And I realized pretty quickly why it was such a, a really hot beat. It was always fraught. And it was because the land, whoever owned the land had the power. That was pretty self-evident. You know, after just a couple of meetings that I covered, land use meetings, I realized mm -hmm. this is power. This is fighting over power. And, and not just power, but power over because when you own the land, you can build, you know, and you have power over the land, you can build tall, tall towers that stop people from feeling the sun on their bodies because mm -hmm. it, it just casts shade. Mm -hmm. You take the land from whence they would be able to hear, you know, feel their feet on the earth and hear the birds and therefore connect with the source. Mm -hmm. So you ultimately own people when you own the land and, and you actually get at this, but that, and then you say, you know, and our astrological symbolism reinforces this and reorients us constantly to power over and i thought that was so um, insightful and i wonder you know does that how do you how do you use that for change how do you use that understanding for change i mean when you interact with the people that you retell stories with these same symbols do you feel like you're empowering them to take that out into the world and reorient people again toward toward themselves? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. I mean, the so the chapters in the book, the first chapter is about the sun, the moon, and Saturn. 
And then we talk about capital. Um, the second chapter is about Venus and Mars. We talked about power. And then the third chapter is about Mercury and Jupiter. And we talked about labor through that. And then so like there's a little bit of strategy. Like in the first chapter, we're like, hey, like, you know, this is the violence of Western meaning making. Like, you know, how we practice astrology, we're like, yeah, well, like we're being like kind of like we're looking to that sometimes. And then the second one like you know i'm trying to make the case that well not everyone experiences these meanings in the same way and then so the third chapter when we talk about mercury and jupiter like we do talk about the difference between representation and storytelling and i'm trying to give people a little bit more space to look at how like you know how they practice um so like you know the first chapter where we're confronting the violence of capital like it does feel really stark uh when you're like okay like you know a lot of these meanings they're represented through astrological language how do you see um the past meeting the future and and the now so the past use would be neoliberalism and I mean, the past use of, of symbol, symbology and astrology in particular would, would be fascism and neoliberalism in power. Okay, so let's talk about that. Tell us a little bit historically about how astrology has been used by fascists and people who seek to um, impose a worldview. Well, like, yeah, a lot of, um, a lot of like, you know, very right-wing people had astrologers, like Reagan had an astrologer uh yeah jp morgan um yeah like i guess it's debated whether hitler had an astrologer and i mean a lot of his like important people had astrologers um so like it is something like because like the way that we look at astrology now as it's being practiced it's like oh like you know it's a lot of like non-men like people who are not men practicing it it's really queer um it's really like kind of community centric um, but it wasn't that way for a long time it was it was used by the ruling class and then so uh, a lot of the ways that the language is shaped like it's shaped by that use too um, so when practicing now like we're doing something a little bit different with it like we have to take that into account like we have to um, just kind of recognize that a lot of the meanings that are embedded within the language um, and how it's like shape to construct meaning. Um, like we can take that part a little bit, basically. Why does astrology appeal to fascists? I have no idea. There is something about astrology that works. I think there's also something about Western astrology because it's like, you know, it's Western astrology that's used by fascists and um, that's like very neoclassical and fascists like neoclassical things like yeah like trump wanted all the buildings to be designed in like a neoclassical or all the government buildings to be designed in a neoclassical way or something like that too so they just like they really like the aesthetic I think, too. but what is the reason for that is that because of that traditional orientation to power that the neoclassical um perspective brings and so i mean it's just kind of associated with the beginnings of the west as a capitalist construct yeah i think it's something about like this nostalgic west like it's um like making something that's remembered like seem even more traditional there's something about that well that that's a good place to go back to this idea of um the self-consciousness of the enlightenment era but you point out um that the enlightenment really was um 
very self-conscious about itself. It was trying to be like the neoclassic. It was trying to reconstruct itself as Rome, as as um, as the Greeks were at the moment when they were debating democracy and you know kind of trying to figure out how to live in a just world and to put this idea that everyone would be the same before the law. And I find this so fascinating because really that's the moment where we are again. It's, we're facing this idea of do we really understand democracy and do we know what we're supposed to do with it? And how is that possible with a hierarchical construct? Because hierarchy is this, capital, capitalism requires this, and democracy requires this, you know, this kind of cir circular thing. And with my guest, Brian Morescu, talking about um, how the church took the idea of Christianity and, and essentially, in my understanding of it, made it hierarchical at a moment in history where Greek society was starting to actually emerge as a democracy that was perhaps, if it had not been conquered by Rome, perhaps going to stop having slavery, perhaps going to give women more power because it was not a great place to be a woman or you know a child um and it was hierarchical there was one but i think the greeks or you know the hellenistic world was examining itself in that way and saying you know when athena came and said let's talk about democracy we need to have everybody be just before the law everyone has to have the same rights before the law the enlightenment posited itself, the, the leaders of the, of the Enlightenment posited itself as being back in that moment. And here we are again in the United States, the, the most self-conscious democracy in, in the world. So we're having a Pluto return as a nation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And I think we could agree then that the symbolism, but definitely correct me if you disagree, the symbolism of Pluto. So a, a, a planet, a planetary return is where in a particular chart of an entity, a nation or person, the planet will have come back to where it is in the chart. So since Pluto takes 248 years roughly to orbit the sun, this is now 240 years after the founding of the United States, according to the most widely agreed upon chart, Pluto is now back in that place. So what does this mean? So this is where I wonder, do you and I agree on this? I see that as um, Plutonian energy, which is blowing things up from as de the, depth, the depths of the depths. So whatever is buried is coming to the fore. D would you agree with that? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because Pluto typically is considered Hades, hell, the god of hell, bringing up whatever is the deepest hell. As an American, I see that that is evidenced, practically speaking. It feels like hell. We can't agree on things. This is that post-truth world. I'm wondering if, you know, this is, your book is really the zeitgeist. Look, if we're going to actually look at democracy, if we're actually going to have this meaningful Pluto return, where we go to the depths of our own soul as a nation, we have to understand the way we frame our understanding of ourselves. And that's the way we interact with the archetypes, the stuff of what the world is made of. I don't know. I mean, that was really what I got to thinking when, when you pointed out the Enlightenment was just playing around in a sense with going back and putting on costumes. And, you know, who was the, the quote from that said, 
that really the French Revolution was just a bunch of guys in togas. Oh, Karl Marx said that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> I hadn't heard that before. Before he hated it, apparently. So this is why what you do with your book is is um, is penetrating because it really asks different questions. And I, I don't know if you realized how um, disruptive it was going to be. I mean, and you say that you intended it to be that way, but. Um, Thanks for I, saying that. Yeah, I mean, so so this idea of where it's come from, right? Astrology being used as an imposition by neo-fascists or neoliberals and fascists. Is it possible we could have a world where we use these symbols, these <clears throat> these these ways of communicating with the archetypes, so that we could create something entirely different? And I think before we even get there, we'd have to step back and say, you know, what are the archetypes? And, you know, you, you've already stated you're not mystical, you're not religious or spiritual, but you, you have commerce, right? Commerce, you, you interact with the archetypes. So you, you, you think they're real. Are they the more real? What are they? In your words, what, what are they? And I'm going to go, I'm going to go from there, but you know, like, what are we agreeing on when we say the archetypes? The archetypes. I mean, I think it's just part of imagination. Like we're based, like, I think we're agreeing that the imagination is real. See, Ace, I think that's actually profound because one of the things that I have been astounded to realize is that one of the ways that we stay enslaved is our attention being aggregated all the time, constantly being forced to look at the story as told to us by the news, by the media, but it's all industrial. It's corporate this, it's corporate that. And then the idea that everything we do online, it's all of our digital selves are packaged and sold. And then, you know, advertisers then gas, get our, grasp our attention and we're constantly focused on things other than our own mind. And that's where I think you're getting into the, the real nub of it. Our minds are where our power is. And that's why everybody's coming for our minds. There's nothing left if we've eaten all the world, you know, we've eaten all the land, we've consumed everything around us. The only thing left that otherwise is infinite is our mind. Our minds are infinite and that's why they want them. This is a resource that is continually able to be renewed over and over and over again. So when you say it's our imagination and it's the mind that, con that connects us with the imagination, I think this is really what we're fighting over. We're fighting over the powers behind this our minds in the moon. Yeah. I still can't believe that Amazon's colonizing the moon. So, <laughs> I'll send you information about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, please do. So with that understanding and people such as yourself who is who are consciously working with clients, with others to engage the mind in a new imaginative realm and a new story and a new way to then generate the reality that they want to live that's where i say well it, what's possible about the future i don't want to have the world be where the the neoliberals are the ones who ultimately use these powerful avenues into the imaginal realms because then we'll all die because it'll be the end of the earth because hierarchy will then have to be in the ascendant forever until we collapse so do you have an optimism that what you're doing can actually lead to new paradigms that are manifest? 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that it's possible to um, have a world without capitalism. Angela Davis says that, like, you have to act every day as if another world is possible. So, like, yeah, I mean, we don't have any choice. So, when you get up in the morning, how do you do that? How do you, Ace, do that? I think that, well, like, so what I usually do, I mean, you know, five days a week, like just when I'm working is uh, I talk to people about themselves. And then so like talking to people about themselves, like doing the client work, like I feel like like we have to act as if change is like not only possible, but all the time happening. Like we're really locating change in the chart. Um, yeah, so it- Wait, 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 just, wait. You're, you're locating change in the chart? locating change in the chart yeah we're looking at what's changing at the moment um we're assuming that change is always a constant so then we're like saying you know no matter what like things will always kind of change um in other words the transits or or the potential of where it is in the chart how do you mean that yeah the transits the transits being the chart in motion um showing how each archetype is changing all the time and then so like I think, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I hope that I believe that change is possible because otherwise it'd be like, oh, here's your birth chart. Like, you know, it's something you have for your entire life. And then it's like, no, like you create the meaning of this. It changes all the time from at, like year to year, day to day. Um, so it's the same chart as when you're six to when you're 60, but the meanings have completely shifted. I think that that is why I'm, I'm curious about how, um, Hellenistic astrologers uh, are reacting to this work because there's as much more fatalistic at heart. Um, or so that's the criticism. The more I learn that style, the more I actually see it as um, how I remembered learning Shakespeare when I was in college. You know, he used, he used form, you know, quatrains are a form, you have a form, sonnets are a form, but through that form, you can explode the universe. So there's that paradox of, you know, a container that is um, systematic can then explode you into what has no bounds. Mm. But I think that's actually what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like, I mean, it's so simple because it's like we're, you know, we're just looking at what's changing at the moment, which is maybe like, you know, one or two transits. Um, you know, we're looking at the animal perfection sometimes, um, like things like that. But like it's a lot it's a lot to talk about like if you talk about like what's changing in someone's life to them like there's a lot going on all the time but you just you excited me so much with this book this book was so helpful in reordering the way i go about um aspiring for for my own um destiny does that make sense oh that's so cool yeah because there's a limitation placed on those of us who grew up thinking there was a right way and a wrong way based on the inherited that received idea that you know this is what a good person acts like this is what a good person wants out of life this is what a good person does to be um seen as an upstanding citizen and none of those things is bad, but they are not the only choices. And I wasn't happy doing those things, but I didn't know why I was unhappy. And then reading this book, I realized 
because someone else already gave me the container to live in and I didn't want that container. There are other ways to, to hold myself. And this book was so useful in reminding me of why I actually loved astrology and why I fell in love with it in the first place, which was because it brought the unknown and the out there to me as a reality through which I could then be more than this. It's so hard to talk about this in a way that isn't loopy. No, I yeah, I'm also very loopy. I think we're both Mars and Pisces, right? <laughs> I am Mars, but yeah, but I'm a Capricorn sun. I see. <laughs> um, people of color, queer astrologers, that that didn't even come into my my uh, world until about a year ago. And that's what's so interesting to me is, is that even that was like, wait, oh yeah, astrology isn't just for white people. Just And so even before your book, I started to have to think, well, what does that even mean? And it brought me back to considering when I had been asked to write um, the perspective of a, a teenage boy who was who was transitioning to becoming a girl. And when I and he, and this individual, they were having a lot of anxiety, and um, it just caught me to start thinking about the 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 importance of gender fluidity because gender itself is like race. We wanna think it's just biological in that it's like, it's binary. So, okay, what am I getting at? What am I trying to say? Like, it's not biological. It's a social construct. It, like it is about performance sometimes, yeah. Let's, let's okay, so let's talk about the gender fluidity of um, not just the astrological community where, you know, there is, there is a subgenre. There's a there's queer astrology. What is that, and how do we then learn from that as a society? Okay, so you say that um, bio, that gender is not biological. That's really surprising to me, to probably most people. So why is gender not biological? How can you justify that statement? Yeah, um, like gender, the I mean, as a social code, it has really nothing to do with biology. Um, it has more to do with the military. It has more to do with war. Um, and it's Paul Virilio who says the original war machine is a man and a woman. So how we enforce ideas around gender, um, it's not even really about like the family or like people's experiences. The family is about war. So it's like, it's all to serve um, like kind of the border too. Like that's what gender is really about. Um, so like, yeah, it has nothing to do with like, you know, your body, um, what genitals you have or anything like that. Yeah. Um, let's, um, I don't understand that. I mean, you talk about yeah. it in your book, but I don't know that my audience will understand. What do you mean? It's about mm -hmm. war. It's about family, but, but there are historic, yeah. what are the historical considerations for that perspective? Yeah. Um, the considerations is around, well, a lot of like how we think about femininity, it's about ideas of like who is worthy of protection. And then a lot of ideas around like how we think about masculinity is often about like, who, you know, what we need protection from. Um, so that's, that's gender. Um, yeah, again, it has nothing to do with your biological sex. It has nothing to do with your body. It has, um, yeah, it has to do with like ideas around protection. And this goes back to 
Roman times or what is, do you, or is it a global phenomenon? All cultures at some time or another adopted this idea that, that, um, masculine energy, which in the neutral sense is just energy that's expansive and goes forward is supposed to be what puts the protective force field around that, which is yin and retreating. I don't know. I'm, well, I'm stretching yin here. Yin and yang is different. Yeah. Yin and yang has to do with, um, has to do with like broken and unbroken lines and change. And then like how the Romans thought about Venus and Mars was that, well, both of them were military gods. Like most, both of them had to do with war. Uh, Venus was about victory and then Mars was about loss. And then so what you would often see with Mars is that like Mars Aries would be on the side of the losing force. And then so like, you know, for the Romans, that would be non-Roman armies. And so that's why like Mars is thought of as invasive. There would be um, there would be like kind of city states that would be compared to feminine people. Like they would be gendered as feminine, um, like when they're under siege. Uh, so that's kind of like how the Romans practice gender. And then the way that we think about gender, it is different. Like it's been modernized for sure. Um, we think about like, you know, we think about like the idea of like femininity, like feminine paradise. I think like that has to do with the colonies that has to do with colonialism. Um, sometimes the way that we think about like invasive masculinity, like this is like, it's not, it's not about white masculinity actually, like um, invasive masculinity is often racialized. Um, so like there's this really gendered divide that shows up in a lot of, um, a lot of romance stories, a lot of like just how we enforce gender. That's like not just about a gender difference, but a racial difference too. So with that in mind, how might we use this kind of stripping away of the um, politicization of gender to think differently about policy. Um, is it possible that we could have, you know, you know, there's so much agita around the idea of transgender bathrooms, right? So um, is it possible to ever fully serve the population equitably with our policies in the current hierarchical construct? Or is this just putting band-aids on band-aids on band-aids? Do we need a completely different way of looking at things? Well, I think, I mean, trans people exist. Yeah, like we should have, like, yeah, we should just have bathrooms available to everyone because everyone needs to use the bathroom too. So like, you know, like all this like kind of theory around gender is not really related like so much to like the rights of trans people, which like trans people just need rights. Um, yeah, but I mean, it is saying like, oh, hey, like, you know, how you think about gender, how we like act as if gender is real, like these things, um, they're things that are like always changing too. And then so, yeah, yeah, like there's going to be people who are trans, there have been people who are trans for like, you know, for forever. Um, so, yeah, everyone just kind of needs bathrooms. Let me, let me unpack this idea of hierarchy a little bit more because really what you're saying is, is that um, everybody needs rights because we all need to have access to resources. But what hierarchy does is apportion resources, clean air, clean water, potable water, um, you know, access to food, access to, the, to shelter and the means to create shelter for ourselves. It apportions access to those things such that you have to pass a test and traditionally it's been 
you were white enough or you were male enough or you know whatever it's been whatever whatever it's been in whatever society but this idea that if if we all had access to things then we wouldn't need necessarily to fight one another so what would we do and and this really came home to me when i was reading in your book about the um the consultant and please fill in the details here the consultant who um was called in by five of the world's richest men and they're men and they wanted to know how do they protect themselves when when the resources run out and and so talk to us about that story because i think it's illustrative of the the end game that we're really talking about here yeah i remember that story like went viral like this last fall or something like that it was this guy and he's like hey like i um i can't remember what he does oh he do he predicts the future and then uh so yeah these people um he, he's like i'm going to talk to you about this meeting i just had with five of the world's richest men um they all want to know like how to protect themselves um uh in the apocalypse and um it's like wow like you know like so like like we've gotten to a point in climate change where five of the world's most uh, powerful men and like you know most of the wealth in the world is concentrated in the hands of eight people too so like these are people like you know if we if we had genuine wealth redistribution I think everyone's incomes would go up and so it's like wow these people they have so much power these things and they don't see a scenario where they're able to avoid apocalypse and not only that but like they don't really trust their relationships with people so it was, yeah, it just, it blew my mind a little bit. It is mind blowing. And that's basically the message there is they're more scared of us. That's why they want to control us. They're so scared of us. And who is us? Us are those who might imagine something different if we were not completely distracted all the time by trying to obtain resources that just normally we would have had access to if we hadn't been apportioned, which brings us back to the idea of race is used as a way to focus attention and reorient power and that's simply all you're saying at the end of the day is that true it's just a reorientation of our minds yeah away from each other and then towards capital yeah. so have i have i missed any important points and is there a um a, a, a kind of takeaway that you would like non-astrologers and astrologers alike to to um think about so that they might in their own world just ask a little bit different questions, maybe reframe their world in ways that they can manage without being freaked out. <laughs> um, no, I don't think we missed anything. That was a really great discussion. It was good talking to you. Um, I think, I guess one thing I hope people take away from the book is that language, it's meant to be used. Um, it changes as you use it. So then you can, yeah, and like, you know you can take that into consideration when you're practicing any language and the, it is a practice it's not something that's distributed onto you but like it's created by your use too um so yeah i hope people use that like kind of idea when they practice astrology um other languages whatever it is you're sort of like the hannah errant of our age and just reminding people that language is um is a resource all its own and it can be a tool for um, destruction and coercion or it can be a tool for liberation mm. but you have to be conscious thanks for taking the time to talk with me and hang out with me a little bit oh it's been it's been my pleasure